0: Father, would you sharpen our minds and keep us focused? And Lord, I ask that you apply these things in a way that I'm not sure that I can. In spirit, pray that you reveal to us the things you want us to see in these passages, in these verses. Father, I pray that you will reveal individually to each of us what you want us to see. And I realize in this study even in this small gathering that there will be people seeing things that I haven't even seen there will be people experiencing and understanding things that nobody else is that's the wonder of your word and how you speak to us how the word is alive and active and living and able to surgically slice into us where we need to be cut carefully so that we might be healed and Father I pray that you just bless this study that your spirit will work in us And teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we left off of verse 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy 23 last week. I want to start off there again, just because it's interesting. No one who is emasculated or uh, has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. It's a great place to start. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now there's a prohibition here. Verse 1, no male who has had what's been described here, I don't even like to say it, can enter into the assembly of the Lord. And no one of illegitimate birth can enter into the assembly of the Lord either. Why not? We're dealing with two things here. God is very serious about reproduction. He's very serious about it. He's saying, if you don't have the ability to reproduce, you may not enter into the assembly of the Lord. Both then and now. Then, because, consider this, the seed was incredibly important. The seed of Israel. The ability to reproduce within Israel was of critical importance. Why? Because Abraham's seed, through the seed of Abraham and all the way down the line for the Jewish people, the Messiah would be born. And so God put a high premium on understanding reproduction matters. It's important. Spiritually, it's the same for us today. God wants people in the assembly who are able to reproduce. Who are able to be used by Him to see spiritual birth happening. That's one of the primary reasons why the church exists. We exist to worship God. We exist to reproduce. We exist to see other people born again. That's why we're going to two services on Sunday for reproduction. It's not so that we can have more room and stretch out a little better. It's not so that we can get rid of the folding chairs and bring in armchairs because we've got more space now. It's so we can provide room for birthing. Birthing what God is doing spiritually, but especially birthing new life among people who, as of tonight, are completely lost. People who don't have new life in Jesus. People who are wandering through their lives trying to get from one day to the next because they don't see Jesus. Reproduction is critical. Adoption in verse 2 is also critical. There's no illegitimate birth with Jesus. No one who comes into the family of God comes in illegitimately. There are only legitimate births, adoptions. We are all adopted as sons and daughters, legitimate sons and daughters of Christ. And so for reproduction and for adoption, this place exists. And that's where we start off tonight, but continuing on now in verse 3, it tells us no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Why not? Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Tathor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity in all your days. Not only biblically, but archaeologically. We know that the Moabites and the Ammonites were pagan to the core. And so God says, I don't want you to have any association with them whatsoever. Theirs is a false religion. They are of a false belief system and they are against what I am for and so you have nothing to do with them he was guarding against false religion seeping into the congregation of Israel now it's easy with Ammon and Moab but how are we to tell if someone is a false teacher how do we guard against that and I think about this with the bridge I consider it often I pray about it quite a bit With this fellowship, Lord, protect the bridge from false teaching from seeping in. But how do we know? Because sometimes it can be so subtle. Jesus puts it this way. He says in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. That's how you know. That's how you can tell who a false teacher is. You will know them by their fruit. What was the fruit of Ammon and Moab? Moses tells us. Number one, they offered Israel no aid and no provision. No aid or provision. And secondly, they sought to curse Israel. Bad moves on both sides. They offered no help, no aid, no support, no backing of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And they also sought to curse Israel. And you know, there's an application to the church regarding Israel today. You've probably heard me talk about this. I hope the point gets driven home. All the way over in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, Jesus is speaking. And he talks about what's called the the judgment of the nations. You might remember it as the parable of the sheep and the goats. And many Christians have read that And confused it And wondered how it works with grace Because you read through that And what Jesus says in essence is at At the time of the judgment He's going to separate the sheep to one side Sheep on his right Goats on his left He's going to separate them from each other And the goats on the left Are going to basically go to hell And the sheep on the right Are going to be ushered into the kingdom What's the difference? Now from a Christian perspective You would think the difference would be grace those who are saved by grace, those who have believed in Jesus and given their lives to Him, well, those will be the sheep, right? That's not what Jesus says. He says the sheep are the ones who saw me hungry and fed me, who saw me thirsty and gave me something to drink, who saw me naked and clothed me, who visited me in prison, who did these things. And as Jesus tells the parable, He says the sheep respond and and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you naked and clothe you or imprison and visit you? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, to to what you've done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it to me. So the, the criteria for getting into the kingdom is how you've treated these brothers and sisters of Jesus. Not grace. Same thing with the goats. He says, because you saw me hungry and didn't feed me, because you saw me thirsty and didn't give me drink, and so on, you are cast out. And they say, well, when did that happen? Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now I read that parable and I say, okay, so which is it, Lord? Is it what I do? Is it my actions, my works, feeding the hungry? clothing the sick or the naked visiting the sick is is that is that what gets me in or is it grace and the answer is it's grace so what is this parable about I believe gang that Jesus is talking about the treatment of Israel during the time of the tribulation Jesus says specifically, Matthew 25, or 46, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Well, who are Jesus' brothers? We can generically say, well, it's mankind, right? No. It's the Jewish people. These brothers of mine. The extent that you treated them, how you dealt with them, how you handled them. And he's talking to the nations. To the nations who go through the tribulation period To the extent that you treat Israel That's how you are going to end up Either ushered into the millennial kingdom Or kicked out Ammon and Moab offered no aid or provision to Israel Many nations today are rising up against Israel Giving no aid or provision to them And I shudder when I think about America And whether we will ever stop giving aid And help and support to Israel It's a dangerous thing Because Ammon and Moab also sought to curse Israel and God told Abraham, right out the gate, Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And so Ammon and Moab sought to curse Israel and ended up themselves cursed. I firmly believe this warning. This warning against Ammon and Moab applies today. Those who refuse aid and help to Israel and those who curse Israel, these will, like Ammon and Moab, be cut off and cast out. But in addition to this, false religion has no place in the congregation of the Lord. We're reading on, verse 7 says, You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. And you shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. And the sons of the third generation of who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. And when you go out as an army against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. This is interesting. Don't detest Edom and don't detest Egypt. Ammon and Moab, they're cut off. Don't detest Edom and Egypt. Why? Who are the descendants of Edom? Or who are they descended from? The Edomites. Anyone know? Esau. Esau. Remember, Edom is that nickname for Esau. It means red because of the whole red lentil stew episode. Esau. Now what's interesting is Esau was a man's man. Back in Genesis when we studied, when we looked at Jacob and Esau, Esau was the tough brother. He was the hunter. He was the outdoorsman. He was the stud. Jacob was the one who liked to stay home and knit. Esau was a picture and is a picture of the flesh in Scripture and many times his name will pop up and there's always a connection to the flesh because whatever he saw he wanted okay just remember that with Esau Galatians chapter 6 verse 8 you guys with me a little yeah, yeah. humor there okay, there. okay good. <clears throat> whatever Esau he, he wanted Galatians 6 8 tells us the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life so what's going on here God says don't Don't detest the Edomites. Don't detest the people of Esau because they're your brother. And I think we can make application to us. And that's this. Listen carefully. Edom is your brother. Don't detest him. God doesn't say cut off the flesh. He says don't crave the flesh. Don't cut off the flesh. Just don't crave the flesh. Let me explain what I mean by that. We are in the flesh, you and I. And we have the spirit of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, Paul says. And we have his spirit indwelling us, but we are still in the flesh. We are fleshly beings. We wander around and we live in this fleshly body, at least until the change comes when Jesus calls us up. But right now we are still in the flesh. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 says those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. And I believe God would say to us right now, don't crave the flesh, but don't cut it off either. Don't detest the Edomite. That is, don't hate the flesh. If I hate the flesh, as happens a lot in the church, what ends up happening is I fail miserably at incarnational ministry. What in the world am I talking about? Incarnational ministry. Jesus said in Matthew eleven, eighteen, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by our deeds. You see, the Jewish people got real upset with Jesus. First they got upset with John, saying he's too pure, he's too different, he's too outrageous. And then they got upset with Jesus, saying he is too much like the common man. He's hanging out with the tax collectors. He is with the sinners. He's walking out of the door of a party where we know drinking was going on. Because Jesus, listen, didn't despise the flesh. He didn't detest the flesh. As a matter of fact, and this is incarnation, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now Jesus didn't crave the flesh, and the Bible tells us very specifically, don't set your mind on the flesh, but don't detest the flesh either. See, we here tonight are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, but we also have brothers and sisters who are in the flesh as well, don't we? Who don't know the Lord, who don't have the Spirit, but they're friends and family members. They are the people who are still in the flesh. And if we detest the flesh, if we just cut it off we say, we're going to have nothing to do with the world or the flesh or anybody, we're just going to hang out with Christians, then we fail at incarnational ministry. One of the reasons we remain in the flesh today it's because God would have us reach out to people who are still in the flesh themselves. It's incarnational ministry. It's meeting people simply where they are. And that's exactly what Jesus did, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And the verse says, and we saw His glory, John 1.14, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Incarnational ministry, gain is the honest wearing of the flesh. It's not becoming puffed up by religion, but remembering remembering what life was like without the spirit. It's remembering when we were in the flesh, and because of that memory, having a compassion for those in the flesh, for the Edomite, for those around us. To look out and say, Man, instead of going, He's the enemy, he's the jerk, he's the one who said against me, saying, She's the hostage. He's the one who's hurting. She's the one who doesn't have Christ. He's the one who's hopeless. Don't detest the flesh. Don't crave the flesh. But gang, if we detest the flesh, we'll drive people away. And if we crave the flesh, we won't reflect the glory of Jesus. So we don't crave the flesh. We crave the spirit. But we also have a compassion for the flesh. Now Egypt... That's Edom. What about Egypt? Don't detest Egypt. Well, Egypt interestingly portrays something in Scripture as well. Does anybody remember what Egypt tends to be a picture of? The world. the world. Egypt is always a picture of the world as you walk through Scripture. So we've already looked at the flesh. What about the world? Egypt, the world, is your temporary dwelling. My temporary dwelling. God says, don't, don't cut off, don't detest the Egyptians. Because remember, you are aliens in His land. Yeah, but Lord, didn't Egypt enslave Israel? Well, yeah, eventually. But for a lot of the time, during that 400 years, they were actually pretty well treated. They were given the best of the land. Goshen in Egypt was like paradise. It was some of the best land available. And that's where God made sure Israel went in the beginning of the 400 years stay there. They sojourned there. They were foreigners and aliens there. And so the Lord says, don't cut off Don't cast out, don't detest the Egyptian. You are aliens, sojourners, foreigners, which describes us exactly. We are those who are in the world, but not of the world. Don't detest the world. Oh, don't live for the world, or in the world, or cling to the world, but understand that as long as we dwell here, our calling, again, is to make foreigners out of everyone else who right now is settling in this world, to invite them to join us on the sojourn as aliens. Live in such a way that the citizens of this world might become sojourners with you. Now, moving on, this next section I just prefer to scoot right on by. (laughs) But we're going verse by verse, so we're going to deal with it. Going on to verse 10. If there is among you any man who is unclean because of a nocturnal emission... Then he must go outside the camp. He may not re-enter the camp. Verse 11, But it shall be when evening approaches, he shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. Isn't that a great way to to put it? Nocturnally missionary. It it, it sounds so just not gross. Unless you think about it. But verse 12 going on says, You shall also have a place outside the camp, and go there, and you shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be when you sit down outside... You shall dig with it, and you shall turn to cover up your excrement. It's amazing what God covers in Scripture, isn't it? Verse 14. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. The Bible deals with everything. But you need to understand something about this. And it's important that it's here. We're going to take a moment to consider this. In that day and age, when you had to go, you went. It didn't matter where. The idea of hygiene was not understood. Even in the days of Rome, and those of you who who travel to Israel, and by the way, there's still room on the trip, so if you're interested in going, please talk to me quickly. But, those of you who are going to Israel, we're going to go to a place, Bet-Shon, which is an amazing, the largest archaeological find in all of Israel. And what it is, is a Roman city. It's one of the ten cities of the Decapolis. And you're going to be able to see the main thoroughfare. And they've actually stood back up. The the Roman pillars and columns that went down that. It's it's an amazing sight. You'll stand up in front of it and look out across this thing. And and it's incredible. And there's a Roman Colosseum there. And there's there's a Roman amphitheater there. And there's a Roman public bathroom. And if you go in, you'll see this. There's, There's a wall. And sticking out of the wall are these little ivory Seats with space in between. And what you would do is go into the public bathroom, men, women, it didn't matter, and you'd just have a seat. You kind of put one cheek on each one of the little library things sticking out there, and you'd, you'd use it. You'd just go right there. I mean, it was pretty crude. Now, what's amazing is they actually had running water in these things, it was a trough underneath the seat. That ran all the way from the high end of the bathroom down to the low end. And the seats went all the way along that wall. So if you're the guy sent to the very end, Uh (laughs) it's not a good place to be. But that was considered hygiene. And that was was high class hygiene in the day of Rome. Back in the days of of Israel, the earlier days, it was just you go when you got to go. And it wasn't clean. And disease came up out of it. And the Creator knew, understood that the spread of disease, what we know now today, from bodily fluids and waste, disease can spread. And so God said, I want to give you some, some help with this ahead of time, before medicine figures this out. When you got to go, go outside the camp. But don't just go outside the camp. Take a spade with you and cover it up. And if you have some kind of other bodily emission, get outside the camp, shower off, clean up, and then come back inside the camp. And you will cease that spread of disease. And indeed, Israel became a very healthy people. We've talked about this before. In the time of the Black Plague in Europe, because of their health standards, the Jewish people, very few of them died of the plague, while all others were dying of the plague, to the point where the Jews got blamed for the plague. Because they weren't dying like everybody else. Why? Because they were following God's proper hygiene and medical prescriptions as laid out in Scripture. It amazes me that God cares about a people so much He will even talk about going to the bathroom so that they will be protected. And in that context, it's amazing. We went to Honduras, took a group of kids there four different times. And the third time, we went and our primary task was to build latrines. We would go into these villages and go to each one of the little homes, and we kind of break up into teams and begin to dig. And we had to dig a hole that was roughly ten feet deep, five foot square, fill the bottom of it with rocks, fill a little bit more in, fill some more rocks, and literally dig and build a a latrine. Because the biggest problem that they had in in the... um, in central Honduras, among the jungles there, was lack of proper hygiene and a lot of sickness and illness, most of it coming from the unclean use of going to the bathroom. So we went to build these latrines, and I'll never forget this, the first day out, we're walking out to the place where they want us to build it, and they show us this place, and some of my kids came up and said, hey, look at this, Rick corn cobs. We found these little dried up corn cobs on the ground, and our guide said, uh, you don't want to touch those, because they use those like you use toilet paper. The kids quickly drop him and I've never looked at corn on the cob the same way since. But ultimately, gang, ultimately this is all about holiness, cleanliness. God equates this physical cleanliness and hygiene, He equates it then to holiness. Moses says in verse 14... Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. So Moses says, keep it clean, gang. And spiritually he would say the same to us. Keep it clean. Keep it holy. How might it affect our everyday behavior if we really understood that moment by moment God was with us in the midst of the camp that he walked with us I believe it would change a lot of our behavior and attitudes just that awareness not, not a fear or a guilt oh no the Lord he's watching me but knowing he walks beside me spending my time with him the people I associate with the movies that I go to the books that I read the music I listen to all of these things would be impacted knowing that the Lord is in the camp he's right there he's with me every moment of the day and truth is he is Now Moses continues on with laws of compassion and relationship. In verse 15, he says, You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. So God's saying slavery is okay? No, he's meeting the people where they are. Later, slavery would be abolished by the work of the Lord in Israel. But at this point, they had slaves, they were accustomed to slaves. If they went to war and they conquered another nation, they would bring back slaves. And so the Lord starts by setting up a prescription for the people. Be kind. If you're going to have slaves, treat them well. And if they run away, it indicates they're not being treated well, you let them live among you. You don't force them to go back. You don't kick them out of the nation. You let them choose a place to live and live there among you. Compassion for a slave is an absolutely new concept here presented to Israel. A new concept among the nations because slaves were as dogs. They were a possession until God said, No, you treat them well with kindness. And then going on in verse 17, it says, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute Nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot, that be a woman, or the wages of a dog, that's a male prostitute, into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. This kind of immorality was not only sexually inappropriate, it was pagan to its roots, sexualizing religion. Drawing the two together, kind of like Madonna wants to do today connecting these two things. And that's... It, it's very ancient. and goes all the way back to these early cultures and God says you will have nothing to do with it. By the way, reading that, what do you think God thinks of prostitution today? He said this recently, if it was an abomination then, it's an abomination now. It hasn't changed. We've changed. God has not. Well, going on, verse 19, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen interest on money or food or anything that may be loaned at interest you may charge interest to a foreigner but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess no charging interest brothers, sisters, family countrymen you might think well why why not I mean you have a friend in need you give him a loan it's kind of you why not make a little something off of it after all, you're going to have to take it out of the bank to give it to him anyway. And you might be losing interest on it anyway. And the Lord understands that. And He would say, look, my economy is not like your economy. You think with numbers a certain way. You're trying to protect your bankroll. I've got a better way. How about letting me protect your bankroll? How about you be giving and I'll provide for you? You trust me and I will meet and take care of your needs. God's ledger just doesn't add up like mine. He says, the more you give away, the more I'm going to provide for you. And we go, yeah, right. Yeah, I'll believe that when it happens. And he says, well, it's not going to happen until you start trusting me. till you start giving it away. And then watch as I bless. Verse 21 going on, he says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be a sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. God says not keeping a vow has the same effect as sin. Now to Israel it was sin. If they made a vow, Lord, I promise I'm going to do this for you, and they didn't follow through, it was sin. Period but it's interesting because as I process this it has the same effect as sin making a vow to the Lord and not keeping it does what sin does it separates you from God the moment I say Lord I'm going to do this and I don't follow through I begin to feel that that guilt and find myself backing away Jesus says it this way he said in Matthew 5.33 the ancients were told that you shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord and he's quoting Deuteronomy here and Jesus said, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your, I know some of you are thinking your teenagers can make your hair white or black, but let your statement, Jesus says, be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Why? Why is this whole vow thing so important? So I make a vow and I don't follow through. We understand each other, Lord, don't we? Is it really that big a deal if I promise something and I I break the promise? I mean, we all break promises. None of us can keep everything that we said. Gang, when we vow something to the Lord and don't follow through, we build a wall of separation between us and the Lord, and He knows this. He would rather we not do anything at all not make any kind of vow then make a vow and not follow through and and I'm not asking for a show of hands but think about it have you ever done that? have you ever said Lord if you get me out of this situation Lord if you would just provide for this financial crisis I'm going to start tithing immediately Lord if you'll do this I'll respond in this way and God provides and after the fact you don't follow through and I know this well because I've experienced it in my life. God gets me out, and I don't follow through in tithing, and suddenly I start feeling kind of embarrassed. Suddenly, every time the pastor mentions giving or tithing, I start to go, and then I check out for a few minutes, and I become distant from the Lord. And Jesus would say to each of us, "I would rather you stick close to Me and not make vows. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no." and make some grandiose, wonderful vow that will end up hurting our relationship. Our relationship, the Lord says, is more important than your sense of vows. So just keep it simple. Now this has huge huge significance for Israel. Massive. Because the whole of Israel made a huge vow to the Lord. Exodus 24, verse 3. You may remember this. Moses came and recounted the people, all the words of the Lord, and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice, and what did they say? All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is good. The law is good. The Ten Commandments wonderful. And Lord, we as a people, we're your people, we're going to follow through. And what do they do? They can't keep the vow. They can't keep their word and so as we get to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you'll see God declaring curses and blessings that will come true if they keep or fail to keep the word. And how did they do? Not good. In fact, Jesus told a parable, he summed it up this way, Matthew 21:28. Speaking to the Jews, he said, what do you think? A man had a couple of sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it, and he went. And the man came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, Oh, I will, sir. I'll go. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The Jewish people there said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because you made vows, Israel. You promised you were going to follow through and you failed miserably. You didn't follow through. Would that you hadn't made the vows. At least then you could be closer in relationship. But you promised to keep the law and Israel you did not keep the law. And again we're going to see that as we close out Deuteronomy in a couple of three weeks here. It's amazing. It's shocking. What happens with Israel. And Moses will prophesy ahead of time exactly what that picture is. We, from our vantage point in history, are going to be able to look back, see what Moses prophesied, and see how it all came true. Because they couldn't keep their word. Promises, gang, always impact relationship. So keep your vows simple. Keep them simple. Take your promises seriously. If you say you're going to do something, do it. there's a word for that, it's integrity. And the Lord calls us as Christians to walk with integrity. It's part of my Christian witness. I can tell all the people in the world I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. But if I have no integrity in my life, it completely undermines my vows, my promises, my witness. Who's going to believe a man who has no integrity? He doesn't even do what he says. And God here with Israel, He's not trying to secure higher tax penalties for the people. He's raising the bar of integrity. Keep your word, he says. It's very simple. Verse 24, he says, When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, and then you may eat grapes until you're fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. And when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. What's this about? If you were traveling in Israel back in that day, you couldn't just pop into McDaniel's or Burger King David. You couldn't go to Jack, Jacob in the Box. I think it's more here. You couldn't pop into fast food place. If you got hungry while you were traveling, you just had to pick from the field that you were in. And God provided for that. If you're in your neighbor's field, you're up in the north traveling with friends, you're passing through a vineyard, hey, help yourself. Have some lunch. You can have some of the grapes. That is allowed. But don't bring your basket and start picking your neighbor clean. Don't go into your neighbor's field of wheat and take a sickle and begin cutting it down and, and hauling it off. Because that's stealing. And I don't want to see this happening. And in Ephesians, the Lord is just saying here through Moses, He's just saying, "Be kind to each other, be honest, have integrity." It's very simple. In fact, as the laws continue in chapter twenty-four, it has to do with with kindness. And right now, we're gonna we're gonna pause for a second in chapter twenty-four and look at a very serious issue, and that's the issue of divorce. Verse one: When a man takes a wife and marries her. And it happens that she finds no favor in his eye because she has found some, he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who he took her to be his wife, then the former husband... Who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, which you shall not bring and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. This is interesting. for centuries, this passage was controversial among the Jews. In fact, it remains controversial to this day. There are two primary schools of thought, and, and by the time of the first century, this was a red-hot debate among Jewish scholars the two schools of thought the two camps if you will were the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai house of being the the Hebrew word there is bet B-E-I-T bet Hillel and bet Hillel the house of Hillel the school of thought that pertained to Hillel the rabbi was simply this Hillel was a liberal and he said a woman can be unclean if she causes uncleanness in the home she can be considered unclean how does she cause uncleanness in the home? If she puts too much much salt on her husband's eggs in the morning. If she burns the toast. If she does something in the home that the husband doesn't find appealing or is upset by or doesn't like, he can call that unclean and she is unclean, according to Hillel. And he can send her out. Hillel also believed that if a husband saw a woman that he thought was cleaner than his wife, he could kick his wife out and divorce her. This guy was a liberal. Hey, you can can take this right to the extreme. If there's a cleaner woman than your wife, boot her out. And the way they did it was they say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times. They would write it down, sign a parchment of paper, hand it over, and the woman would be divorced. It was that easy. A parchment of divorce and the deed was done. But there was another school of thought. And it's Bet Shammai. Shammai was a rabbi who was more conservative, and he said, a woman is only unclean due to sexual immorality, and that's it. If there's an affair, if there's adultery, if there's sexual immorality, the woman is unclean, and for that reason, a divorce can happen. The husband has the right to divorce, but for no other reason. And these two camps went back and forth and debated and argued about this. Thank goodness Jesus came along. Because trying to understand life through the mind of man only gets frustrating. There are 300 differences of opinion Between these two houses in the Talmud Going back and forth Hillel states this But Shammai states this But Hillel states this But Shammai states this And if I was Jewish reading the Talmud today I'd go, I don't know who to believe How do we figure this out? Listening to these guys argue Listening to these professors of Judaism Pontificate and think these things through And Jesus cuts right to the chase In fact, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19 I am so thankful so we have the Word to go to, because honestly, if we had to figure it out for ourselves, our elders, we've been discussing um, deacons. We had a great meeting just a, a couple of weeks ago, and we were in the Word, and it was a lot of fun, really, because we were looking at what the Bible has to say about it, praying about it. And I came out of the meeting going, hey, good, we all understand, we're on the same page, off we go. And and then the phone started ringing, and the email started coming, and, and guys started saying, what did we decide? I'm not sure. I get, what is that? Can we revisit this one concept? And, and you know, but that's what we do. That's what we do as human beings. We get going on these rethinking, and Jesus comes right through and says, "Let, let me explain. Let me tell you. Let me make this clear for you." And he does this in Matthew 19, verse three. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Shammai and Hillel, they both, by the way, uh, lived a couple of three generations before Jesus came. So, again, when Jesus came on the scene, this was a red-hot issue. The issue of divorce. How do you deal with it? Here's what Jesus says, verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said... For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I think sometimes we've heard that so many times in weddings that it just becomes flippant. But here and again, what God has joined together, let no man separate. God has a very definite opinion about divorce. If a man and a woman come together, they become echad in the Hebrew, one, one flesh. They are connected in a divine way. God has joined them. Let not man separate them. And so they said to him, Why then did Moses give her a certificate of divorce and send her away, referring to Deuteronomy 24? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, it says immorality, but the word is literally fornication or adultery. And marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus sided with, sided with Rabbi Shammai, and that's where we know the answer. Shammai was right. Hillel was wrong. But divorce gang, Going back to Deuteronomy. Divorce becomes inevitable Jesus says when the heart becomes hard It's because your hearts get hard That God allowed for divorce It's because your heart dries up Your love goes away You begin to think more of yourself And the divorce can happen And Jesus finally declares it Defines it but do you see what Jesus is doing when he shares this and when he answers them and how he approaches it he bypasses and I love this about the way Jesus teaches he bypasses the intellectual debate he doesn't get into a war of words he doesn't start quoting Hillel or Shammai or pitting them against each other he doesn't respond with all kinds he just takes them right back to the very beginning to God's standard what was it like at the beginning how did God do it what did God set up as the pattern what is the plan look at that go back to Eden one woman for one man for one life that's God's design and even when it's tough it's still the best way to go Jesus says so you might say well you're saying if a a person divorces then according to Jesus according to Moses according to the word they sin yes divorce is sin of course we've all sinned haven't we it's so easy to talk about other people's sins because it takes all the heat off of me. I can stand back and I can, and I can point out the sins of other people, things that I don't struggle with, things that have not ha- I've never been divorced. My wife and I have a very healthy marriage today. <laughs> We've had our struggles like anybody. But it's easy for me to stand up and say, divorce is sin, and if you're divorced, you are living in sin. You are in the, the process of sin. Churches teach that, by the way. You may be familiar even with that theology. Maybe you even embrace that theology. I hope you don't. But the fact that once a person is divorced, they are in the state of divorce the rest of their life, and if they try to remarry or do anything else, they sin again, and it's just a continual state of sin because they've been divorced. That is not what the Bible teaches. Divorce is sin, yes, but there is only one unpardonable, one, one unpardonable, unforgivable sin. One. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't see divorce listed as unpardonable, Unforgivable. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction, Paul says in Romans 3.23. We've all sinned. So does that make divorce okay? No, it doesn't. It's still sin. But Jesus' concern always goes deeper than outward behavior. His concern is for the heart. Which is why he says it's because of hardness of heart that Moses gave you the, the, the certificate of divorce. Hardness of heart. Jesus doesn't want you to have a hard heart. doesn't want you to go through that heart attack relationally. And those of you who have been divorced, you know how painful it is. I have never talked to someone who was divorced who said it was a good decision. There are those who have said it was a hard life, it was difficult, I'm probably better off now. But there still is connection and pain associated with it that never goes away. You still have to deal with the person. Because there was a connection in the first place. I've never yet met a person who's gone through a divorce who would recommend it to another person. Oh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> We're closer now, actually. Life's better. And, the way, and then the way our kids dealt with it, and we all got it, was wonderful. I'd tell everyone, go out and get married and get divorced, because it's a good thing. No one says that. It's painful and difficult and hurtful. And as a matter of fact, back in our chapter, back in chapter 24, <laughs> Moses explains what a mess it can be. The woman gets divorced and she leaves her husband's house and marries another man, and then he decides he wants to divorce her. Now she's divorced twice, which often happens. Once there's divorce, it's easier to divorce the second, third, on down the line. And now she's out, and, and her first husband says, Well, I kind of like her again. So I'm gonna try and take her back. And Moses says it just gets to be a big mess. And as a matter of fact, he says to the woman, to the man, you can't go back to that first marriage. Why? It's dead it's dead don't go back and try and reclaim that you know it's interesting I've talked with more than more than one Christian person who has gone through divorce and who has asked this question Divorced, remarried has asked this question they came to Christ maybe after the fact and said should I now divorce my second husband and go back and be with my first husband to make it right according to Moses that first marriage is dead why would you want to dig it up You don't go back there and and try and start digging up and reviving it. Jesus says, okay, you sinned. Go your way and sin no more. Let it go. It is now past tense. Well, look, are you saying the divorced couple can't get back together? Well, there is a word for bringing something dead back to life. It's resurrection. And it's a miracle. And God can do it However, too often Christians will go digging in the cemetery of a past broken marriage to try and make something right out of a sense of false guilt or stale obligation. And Moses would say, you let it lie. You don't try and go back and and fix that mess. Now on a lighter note, verse 5 says, When a man takes a new wife... He shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And we talk about this as one of the exemptions of warfare. If you're newly wed, you get a year off just to be home with your wife. Now, I really like the King James translation of this verse. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 24.5 says, He shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he has taken. I guess she needs cheering up once she realizes who she married. (laughs) So it's a great principle, though. It's taking that first year of marriage. And I would encourage those of you who have kids who are toward the marrying age to tell them, let that first year be a year of focus. Put the marriage first. I encourage young couples, man, don't go out, get married your first year, and immediately dive into the workforce, or immediately dive into some heavy schooling. Let the marriage be the focus of the first year. Get grounded, get solid in the relationship, and then pursue other interests as your marriage strengthens and grows. So, you're free at home. Cheer up your wife. Stay with her for a year. Now, for the next several laws, again, I remind you of the fifth fruit of the Spirit, which is played out in all the rest of these laws, and that is simply kindness. Now something about kindness I was thinking about just this word This is one Satan has worked really hard To render as wimpy And lame And spineless He's so kind What man among us really wants to be known as kind He's a kind man He's a gentle man It's not a real manly sounding word And yet it describes and defines The spirit of God Kindness Treat each other well. Paul says Ephesians four thirty-two, be kind to one another and tender hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So keep that in mind, kindness. Verse six going on says, No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. What's this talking about? In pledge means to take something in collateral. If someone's going to borrow, if you're going to loan some money, you're going to loan something to someone and they need something in collateral, that that would be the pledge. And it says, don't take a, a millstone, an upper millstone, or a hand mill. Why? Those were used every day for feeding, for preparing food, for sustenance. Don't take something that the person needs to survive. Now, to take something in pledge, again, it means collateral. Since the people couldn't charge interest to each other, they would often take something in collateral. Loan me 200 bucks then I'll give you my leather jacket until I pay you back. But here what he's talking about. In essence, the upper millstone or the hand mill would be comparable to a microwave oven maybe. Or George Foreman grill, something that you would use every day to cook. Don't take that. They need it. Take something else as collateral. Verse 8 going on says, Be careful against an infection. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped verse seven. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with them violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. You shall purge the evil from among you. Again, don't don't do this. Don't think, do things that hurt or harm other people in Israel. Be careful against an infection of leprosy. That you diligently observe and do according to all that the Levitical priests teach you, as I have commanded them. So you shall remember it to do remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out from Egypt for the good of the nation God says quarantine the illness of leprosy don't let it spread don't let it get out do you recall what happened to Miriam do you remember how she got leprosy the story was back in Numbers chapter 12 if you remember the story she she became green with envy and so God made her white with leprosy she and Aaron were envious of Moses They're going, why does he get to talk to God? Don't we also talk to God? Am I not a prophetess, Miriam is saying? Am I not one of the three big ones? Why do they all have to listen to Moses? Why can't they listen to me? And immediately God made her leprous. There's an interesting connection here between envy and jealousy and leprosy. Both of them destroy sensitivity. Jealousy and leprosy both destroy sensitivity. They eat away at... at, 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 our skin they eat away at us internally jealousy eats away envy eats away it's an ugly thing and if you have been or are right now envious of anybody in fact take a moment is there anyone in your life that you envy is there anyone in your life that you are jealous of that that when their name comes up or when you see them you just kind of go is it eating away at you it's leprosy Moses said, and God said to Miriam, I'm going to show you exactly what your envy looks like physically. And he gave her leprosy. Don't allow it to spread. Don't allow envy or jealousy to spread either. Be kind to each other. You could put it this way. Play nice. Verse 10. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not enter into his house to take his pledge. You remain outside, and the man to whom you made the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he's a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. If his pledge is like a blanket or a jacket or something. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it will be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. This is all a matter of privacy and respect. He says you don't bust someone's door down to go get the pledge out of their house. You respect their privacy and wait respectfully for them to bring it out to you. And he says that if you borrow something from someone and it's a coat or a blanket and they need it to stay warm at night, you give it back to them, and then you retrieve it again as a pledge the next morning. Now this runs kind of counter to the way we think, because I would think if I, you know, if I loan somebody some money and they gave me a pledge of a blanket and they had to sleep a couple nights out in the cold, maybe they'd pay me back a little quicker. Maybe we move this process along, teach them a lesson. They really shouldn't have borrowed that from me in the first place, huh? And Moses says, be kind. Be kind to each other. Take care of each other. Put each other first. Jesus put it this way. Luke 6.30 He said, Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. In Luke 6.38 He says, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return that last line a few years ago I was studying this verse and I realized this is not just religious talk this is very practical Jesus is saying the measure that you use to treat other people that measure is going to be used for you because that's how we react to each other isn't it those who are generous to me man I want to be generous back They go out to lunch with someone and they're always offering to pay I want to offer to pay but if someone's stingy guess who's stingy whenever I'm with them (laughs) I am the measure you use is the measure that will be used towards you in return interesting verse 14 going on says you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land in your town you shall give him his wages on his his day before the sun sets for he is poor and he sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it become sin to you when I was a young youth pastor at a church I had to chase down my paycheck I hated that I mean, literally every two weeks, I had to go find the right elder to get my paycheck signed because I was so poor. I wanted it that day. I needed it that day. And they figured they'd get it to me, you know, maybe Sunday or the following week or whatever. And I was always in my car grabbing a paycheck from the church secretary to have one signature. Had to have an elder signature. And I had to drive out to one of our elders' places of work just to get my check signed. Because if I didn't, I didn't get it for three or four days. That's what this is talking about treat each other well take care of each other and by the way I don't have to do that here so that's a good thing (laughs) take care of these things before the sun sets in other words don't be cold hearted verse 16 fathers shall not be put to death for their sons nor shall this is an important verse nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers everyone shall be put to death for his own sin we talked about this a little bit on Sunday Everyone should be put to death for his own sin. We all sin and are deserving of death. Praise be to Jesus Christ that he took our place and died for us. But listen, it's important. This is what makes the cult so damnable. This is what lifts up the teaching of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and other cults that are like-minded and says this is heresy. This verse right here does it. Listen to it again. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Why Why is this a curse for, for the cults even of today? Because it's exactly what they teach. That God sent a son who was not his equal, who was a created being, down to earth to die, to do his dirty work for him. And Moses says it right back here, and I believe it's an indication of Jesus to come, that a son does not die for the Father. The Father does not die for the Son. Jesus was not the created being, the Son, the lesser being to God, who was sent down to do what God Himself wasn't going to do because He was above it, you know, because He was God. And so He needed to find someone who was willing to die that He could send down and take care of that business. God sent Jesus to do His dirty work. Not true. Jesus is God. God did his own dirty work. God is the one who died on the cross for us. And it's critical in our thinking, and I hope you're getting that. that the divinity of Christ Jesus is absolutely critical to believe in Christ Jesus as the Lord that we have faith in, the Lord who is declared in the scriptures. Isaiah 9:6 said, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace This Jesus Christ, this Son given to us Would also be called Eternal Father Why? Because He and the Father, John 10.30 tells us Are one Jesus and the Father are one First Timothy 3.16 says Without controversy Great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh Justified in the spirit Seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles Believed on in the world And received up into glory Who was? God was 2 Corinthians 5.19 If this isn't clear enough I don't know what else is Paul said God was in Christ Reconciling the world to himself He didn't send his son To die for him Because the son doesn't die In the place of a father According to his own law Only God died in our place On that cross The whole basis gang For kindly living Is the kindness The kindness of God Verse 17 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to an alien or an orphan or take a widow's garment and pledge. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheep in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. You might notice the theme here. In order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. What's left It's for the alien and the orphan and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. The Lord says... It's His kindness. The whole basis for our kindness is God's kindness. He says, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. You were slaves there. Because of that, you treat the alien and the orphan and the widow and those who have nothing. You treat them well. You take care of each other. You be kind to each other because I was kind first to you. Paul says in Romans 2.4, applying it to us, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? And tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And this is why James makes the connection between pure religion and our treatment of widows and orphans. He says in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We're going on quickly. Chapter 25 says, verse 1, If there is a dispute between men and they decide to... (laughs) Okay, this gets interesting. If there's a dispute between men and they decide to go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemned the wicked then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt okay this is not the verse I was thinking it was that's coming up in a minute it says he may beat him forty times but no more so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these and your brother is not degraded in your eyes Guilt in the case of a minor crime, not a crime deserving of death, but a minor crime declared a public beating. And it was done with a stick across the back. We read about it in Proverbs 10.13. talks about the fool being struck across the back with a stick. But it was done publicly. Now something like this, in fact, several, just a few years ago, you remember there was a, a boy who was caught um, doing something in China and they caned him for it? And there was an absolute uproar and outrage in America over the caning of this young man. I think for... Um, tagging cars. He was tagging cars. Now, what do you think would have happened to the whole kind of culture of tagging that was going on in America in that time if we had employed a law like caning? Tag a car, you get beaten. Publicly. I bet a lot of the tagging probably would have stopped so Rick you're for public beating absolutely it works well with my kids no (laughs) the idea here though is a deterrent discipline and punishment as a deterrent God is saying I'm going to set this up and as we talked about Sunday even the death penalty was set up as a deterrent not because God wanted people beaten or killed but because if we understand the severity of the crime we might choose not to commit the crime and parents you know this I've seen this happen with my kids over and over. When one kid is punished, it is amazing how nice the other kids suddenly become. Oh, they're just so. Dad, can I help you with the dishes? You know, just after one of the other kids was spanked, and they're they're all, and and even the one who got spanked. It's incredible how quickly they turn around. Now, now, Corey's 16, and I don't spank him anymore because it could end up hurting me. But it's, it's this concept of deterrent discipline that God is laying down here. And it's one reason why our penal system simply does not work. Did you know that it costs more to incarcerate a person in prison for one year than it costs to send a man to Harvard? That's what our taxes are going to To keep someone in prison, feed them, clothe them, meet the needs of having them in prison, we could send them to Harvard and give them an education. Maybe we should consider doing that. I don't know. Something's just messed up. Now, I'm not personally into beatings, but we have lost the value of clear lines and real discipline and legitimate punishment, and that's all God is doing here. In fact, He's showing some mercy. He's saying, you beat them with a stick, but no more than 40 times, and that's your worst case scenario. You make sure you don't go over that. And the Jews took it so seriously, they called it the 39 lashes less one. Paul refers to it, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. 24. He says, from the Jews, five times, I received 40 stripes, save One. The Jews were so careful with this law, they didn't want to go over 40, so they would count up to 39 and stop. Just in case. Give themselves a leeway of one, uh, of one stripe. Which is why in the Bible, 39 is the number of mercy. And 40 is the, is the number of judgment. And you'll see that over and over in the Bible. 40, the number of judgment. Well, verse 4 says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Paul draws off of that in 1 Corinthians 9, nine, and he applies it to the pastor or teacher who feeds the flock and he says it's alright that they are salaried but they're not starved as, as a pastor that they are they are worth their wages you take care of them in fact when Paul's describing it he says God's not concerned about an ox that's not what he's talking about it's not the big deal it's an example when someone is working especially working for the Lord don't deny them their wages verse 5 going on when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Which was why when a guy got married in Israel, his younger brother was so interested in what that bride looked like. And it goes on and says, verse 6, that it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So apparently in Israel you are your brother's keeper. You do care for your brother even in his death. But what if the younger brother doesn't want to take her as his wife? What if he doesn't want to have anything to do with her? Well, interesting, he goes on and says, Moses says, verse 7, If a man does not desire to take his brother's wife... Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel, and he is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him, and if he persists, say, I do not desire, and says, I do not desire to take her. Watch this. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, and pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face... And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called, The house of him whose sandal is removed. I love this. I think that's a great rule. Now what's interesting here is that this, this whole implication about her taking off the shoe and spitting in his face is to say, literally, this guy's a heel. It's what you're saying, this is the one who who has a shoe, his sandal is removed. He's got no soul. He's a shoeless wonder. Thank you. He's saying this guy won't he won't fulfill this important role, but this actually comes to play. There's an entire book in the Bible that deals with this law. You know what it is? Ruth. Ruth. You'll see this played out when we when we read and study through the, the four chapter book of Ruth. She comes along and, and I'm not going to you know, give it away. It's a great story. Go read it. Maybe tonight when you get home. It's a quick read. But Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer. He takes Ruth, whose husband has died, under his wing because the, the uh, actual relative of her husband doesn't want to have anything to do with her. And it's a cool story of redemption and restoration and covering that is provided. But listen... In both the previous section where a man is to take no more than 40 lashes and even in this section where a man's shoe is taken off and he is spit at in the face, we see a picture of Jesus. We see hints of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The only difference between Jesus and the two guys described in these two sections here. The only difference is He did no wrong but was beaten in our stead. He wasn't just beaten with a stick. He was lashed with a flagellum. You know what that is? Strips of leather with pieces of bone and metal and wood wrapped into leather so that when it went across his back, it was dragged off his back, taking the flesh with it. And Jesus Jesus didn't refuse his wife. No, he came for his wife, the bride, the church. He loved his wife. But even though he loved his wife and chose to take her when no one else would, he was still spat upon his face. We haven't been our brother's keeper. Each of us, we've turned to our own way. We failed in our call to kindness, and so Jesus took on Himself the full weight of godly kindness, the full weight of responsibility, and became what we couldn't be, and lived out and walked out what we were called to, but failed at. True godly kindness. Going on in verse 11. Now, this is is an interesting verse. God really does think of everything. If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together. And a wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him, and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, yes, that's what it says, then you shall cut off her hand. <laughs> you shall not show pity. This cracks me up you know what the King James translation of this is? I think it's hilarious. Hmm? No, you do want to know. It's actually better than the NASP. It's not quite so graphic. It's, it's kind of funny. It says that if a woman comes to deliver her husband from the hand of the one striking him, and puts out her hand and seizes his secrets. Oh. <laughs> That's what it says. His secrets keep your hand off the other man's secrets is what the King James Version translates and this law it's, there's one of two possibilities with this law either it assumes that this is eventually going to happen which I can't even imagine or I wonder if this had happened And this, this thought just struck me actually walking down here I was thinking about this verse it's kind of a hard verse not to think about when you've just read it it's so, so weird it's so obtuse but I'm walking down here thinking about this and thinking I wonder if there wasn't something going on at the time, where maybe some of the women in Israel figured out that this was not that this was a you know a, a difficult area for a man to defend, brought about pain, and maybe there were some wives who were going about and when there were arguments springing up, they were just reaching. I don't know, but it's here for a reason, and part of the reason, if we can be serious with it, I know it's a, it's kind of a silly thing for us, but. Part of the reason is this right here. Wives, listen. Your heart is always to defend your husband. I, I've seen this over and over with Cheryl. If I come home and I've had a frustrating day and I share any of it with her, I can just see her face getting red. I can see that that desire to step out there for her husband. I can see it rising in her. And oftentimes the wife can step into the fray... And the problem can continue when it's left to the two guys who are duking it out in the first place, it would be over. Now I want to tread this lightly because I don't want to be offensive and I don't want to sound sexist here. But the truth is, men tend to duke it out and then they're done. And they're okay with each other. They get over it pretty quickly. Women step in and grab hold of things they ought not to grab hold of and they won't let go. And they hang on to it and and then then there's this conflict there that would have been fine had the men just been left to duke it out and something, ladies, you need to understand your husband might not be right. He might come home and share with you his opinion, his perspective, his frustration and he could be dead wrong. But because he's your husband you jump in and you you want to defend. I would encourage you to, to back off of that. Let your husband deal with his issues. Because what often happens is when a woman enters into the fray, she gets cut up in the process. She loses a hand. Proverbs chapter 31 verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. But a woman who is defending her husband and not letting go and being contentious and being angry and continuing a process of rivalry and problem and dispute and anger, she's gonna have her hand cut off. The same hand that can show the fruit of work to the Lord, the same hand that could be lifted up in praise and honor to the Lord, the same hand that can hold on to the product of her hands and and can hold her works that bring praise and honor and glory to her, the proverbial writer says. That hand's cut off. And people will instead look at the woman and go, she doesn't deserve any of the praise and honor. Paul said in Philippians 4.2 and it's quite a, um, a legacy for two women in the Bible. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And for all time Yodia and Syntyche will be known as the two women who couldn't get along. That's their legacy. Phoebe is mentioned in the scriptures as a servant. Literally a diakonos, a deacon. And Prissa Priscilla and Aquila known as a teacher and other women throughout scriptures known for doing wonderful things but Yodi and Syntyche those are the two women who they just couldn't get along they couldn't work out their differences and Paul says man I just I just wish the two of you would get along so ladies I just ask you this question what is the work of your hands are you grabbing on to things that are not your business or are your hands producing praise for the Lord are your hands busy gleaning the fruit of the Spirit? You probably wonder where we were going to go with that passage. Well, that's what we did. Verse 13, moving on. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and a just weight. You shall have a full and a just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord your God. He's just saying, in essence, don't keep two sets of books, one for selling and one for buying. Don't rip people off. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. Just be kind to each other. Be fair and be just and be honest and be good. And we're going to finish up the rest of this chapter on Sunday morning. So we'll stop for tonight. And Father, I just pray as we move through all these laws very quickly, Lord, covering three chapters tonight, that you will um, invest in us those words that apply to us specifically. May we, Lord, tonight as we lay down to rest, tomorrow as we get up to go to work, and as we move through our day, through the rest of the week, I pray, Lord, may, may we remember those things, these words, these teachings that apply, that we need to know. I pray that you write these on our hearts. And Father, I always ask, this is something I can't do. I can stand up here and blah, blah, blah and talk all evening long. Only you, Father, can write your word on our hearts. Can bring it to mind tomorrow or the next day or the next. And so I ask, Lord, by your spirit, by your power, that you would again invest your words into our lives and our hearts. Speak to us what we need to hear. And Father, I pray blessing for this family and this fellowship in Christ Jesus. And it's in His name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Amazing stuff in this book. Incredible things. I I never cease to be amazed at what God is not afraid to deal with. And I guess the encouragement and the reminder for all of us is that there's nothing in your life that is untouchable to God. There's nothing he's afraid to deal with. There's nothing you've dealt with or or there's no sin that you've committed that scares him away. He's your father and he loves you and he wants to get involved.